Father, we are thankful. As always in our prayers, we start with thanks, Father. We want to be mindful of what you have given, even as we may come with desires and needs and worries and concerns. So, we, Father, we always start in, in our prayers with thanks to you and in glory given to you for who you are and for what you've done, for all that you've promised, for all that you have and will do for us. Father, just for who you are, we want to thank you and glorify your name and praise you, acknowledging your sovereignty, acknowledging, Father, your authority, acknowledging your preeminence in all things. We do thank you, Father, that this week and the week that comes ahead will remember the great sacrifice that you made in bringing your son into this world, that he did not count equality with you a thing to be held on to and, and to be preserved, but rather, Father, he was willing to give himself up and make himself lower than even the angels that he created, to become, in the likeness of man, someone who could then take our place in the death that we deserve, who can teach us, lead us into glory by his work and by his word. Father, we thank you for that. We have desires, particularly those who might be young in the room, for what you might bring us on a day to come this week and the Christmas gift-giving that is our tradition. But, Father, I pray it would never become more important to us than the gift we've received by faith. And I do ask, Father, that as we study in Ephesians, a book rich in your doctrines of the truth, and a book, Father, that challenges us in our thinking and in our behaviors, that we would be able to rest in what we learn, Father, even if, for now, we aren't fully able to understand it all. But we'd be content to know that as you renew our mind and our spirit by the washing of the water of the word, that we can become more like you by your power working in us. For, Father, that itself is the greatest gift we can experience having been saved by the faith you gave us. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, you may remember I started this letter explaining that we had to get through a, a few chapters of doctrine before we would find ourselves in some chapters of application or how we live in light of that doctrine. And I said that that was natural because doctrine has to inform our behavior. We have to know what's right before we understand how to live according to it. And as I've gone through the letter so far up through the middle of chapter 2, we've seen a lot of doctrine. And we have a little more left to go. And as we learn it, it should begin to influence our outlook on life, the choices we make, the priorities we set. Those things should be driven by what we understand about our relationship with Christ. Knowing doctrine in this way is supposed to develop our faith in such a way that we gain an eternal perspective in life and in the life to come. And it causes us to think very differently about the everyday quality of life. If that's true, then, then if you flip that around, there's also a correlative truth. And that is that you can't expect to rise above worldly temptations, your own sins and all that comes with it, unless you're seeking for that eternal perspective, unless you care about doctrine. And in fact, I think that if you see a believer in somewhere in your world that's caught in a carnal life, a worldly life, if you know someone like that, or maybe that's been you at times in the past or even now, I want you to consider that at least part of the cause for that is a lack of an understanding of spiritual things, of doctrine. It starts there, I think. You may not realize, for example, that you've received something great, something rich in the heavenly future that you have, an eternal inheritance. You may not understand that. Or you may not understand that your mission here on earth and the life that God's given you is a mission of serving Christ and not yourself. And because you don't understand those things, they don't influence your behavior. Or perhaps you have heard these things 
like in a church service, like here. But whatever understanding you gained, it was purely academic. It never actually became something you wanted to live up to. It never drove your thinking and your choices. In chapter 1 and 2 so far, we've studied Paul's teaching on the means of our salvation in Christ, and then last time we taught on what it means now to serve Him in light of our salvation. Last time it was verse 10. We studied verse 10 that we were saved for a purpose, we were here to accomplish good works, and that those good works were prepared by God for us to complete to the glory of Christ. I call it a buffet, remember? It's a buffet of good works. God has set that before us. And by His Spirit, we are to go about accomplishing them. He's given us those opportunities so that we would walk in them. But the choice is really ours. Do we walk in them or not? Do we serve Him or do we serve ourselves? That's where we left off. But in all that Paul has taught up to this point, he's really been centered on the spiritual life of an individual. How the individual is brought into the faith that God gives. How an individual is to respond to that faith in walking out a life of good works. But we know, and certainly Paul knows, that the individual Christian does not live in isolation. We don't serve God by ourselves. We're part of a family of God. By our faith, we all receive the Spirit of God. And by that Spirit, we're all united into one body. The body of Christ, we call it. That means that the works that we are called to accomplish as a believer are works that must be corporate Works Even as we accomplish our own individual part, it's meant to be done in the corporate setting. You might say that that buffet of works is intended to be eaten family style. So that raises a question for this morning. What if we're divided? What if as a body, we come in a divided way? Well, the answer is obviously we're not going to work very well together. And if you fail to work together, then you can't accomplish the work that was intended by God, predestined by God, to be done together. And so from what Paul says next in this letter, you're going to see that the church he's writing to in Ephesus was a church that was wrestling with a particular kind of division. It was a division centered on personal importance, on status, and in particular, the status that Jewish believers felt that they had over Gentile believers. Now in the church, personal importance, an attitude of pride, something in which we concern ourselves with where we stand relative to others around us, by its very nature, runs at odds with corporate success. Personal importance is a zero-sum game. It means that in order for us to win, somebody else has to lose. There's only so much of it to go around, so if I take it, someone else can't have it. It works this way in the world, you know, right? If you want to get a promotion, someone else has to be rejected for that job. If you want to get the business deal, well, some other company has to lose the deal. It's a zero-sum game. You climb the ladder by stepping on those who are below you. But in the church, that attitude is toxic. It reflects an immature understanding of Christian doctrine, as I said earlier. So Paul now in this letter is going to move forward into exploring the importance of corporate unity in the church as we seek to live out our faith through good works. This is all building on what he's already taught. But of course, in light of what's going on in Ephesus, his particular focus in this question of unity is going to be on Jews and Gentile believers working together in the body. But obviously for us today, that particular division is not so common, although it does exist in some places even now. But it's going to give us an opportunity to talk about important divisions that can exist even today, different ones, but they serve the same purpose of illustrating the principle. So we'll look at Jew and Gentile as a question in this letter, but we'll be talking across other issues as well. Let's begin in verse 11. Paul picks up and he says, Therefore, 
Remember that formerly you, the Gentiles in the flesh, who were called uncircumcision by the so-called circumcision, which is performed in the flesh by human hands, remember that you were at that time separate from Christ, excluded from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. Notice how verse 11 begins, and I'm not going to use the old joke, but it starts with therefore, indicating that Paul is making an application here, based on what he's already taught. He wants you to come to a conclusion with him. So in what he taught before, in verse 10, Paul had just said, you and I are created by God in Christ Jesus for the purpose of performing good works. Now he takes that truth and he applies it to the church in Ephesus. And he says the first and most important work any church must perform to the glory of Christ is to live and to work as one in witness to the love of Christ. In the case of Ephesus, it would seem that the church is divided and not just by their affections for the world. Remember, we said this is a rich church living in a rich culture and so they were probably divided at least, if nothing else, by their worldly interests. But now we find that they're divided internally in a very interesting way. They're divided along lines of Jew versus Gentile. Ephesus was a Greek city and it was part of some of a region that the Bible calls or the ancients call the diaspora. The word just means dispersion. And it refers to the settlement of Jews throughout the Gentile world and particularly along the coastline of the Mediterranean Sea. As Jews left the area of Judea, Jerusalem, and, and what we call Israel today, they would settle in some of these areas of what was called Asia Minor and into the area of Greece or Rome. And they would settle in cities often along the coast. And in each of these cities, a sizable contingent of Jews would eventually settle and they would establish communities together. They would build homes. They would build businesses. They would build their synagogues. They would grow strong often in these communities. Often they became very financially successful in these places. Typically, as a result, the Gentile populations of those cities, who had already been there, of course, they would grow to resent the Jewish success that the immigrants of Israel would come in and establish such successful lives right from the start. And of course, Jews congregated together, and so they became like little areas of the city. And those prejudices grew over time. The Jews, for their part, didn't help matters very much by their attitudes toward the Gentiles. The Jew was taught from birth that Gentiles were dogs, unworthy of God's love. In fact, they would say that God created the Gentiles merely to fuel the fires of hell. We were like coal for hell. They had a saying, they said, even the best of serpents crush and even the best of Gentiles kill. So Paul draws his reader's attention here in verse 11 to the separation when he says, remember, you Gentiles, remember what you lacked prior to coming to faith. So, so Paul is dealing first with the Gentile side of this argument, and he starts by calling out those who were, quote, Gentiles in the flesh. Now, when he says the flesh, Paul's referring to the physical mark of Jewishness, which we all know is circumcision. All Jewish boys are to be circumcised at day eight, else they are excluded from the nation of Israel if they're not circumcised. And therefore, circumcision is a symbolic Jewish identity. If you lacked circumcision, then you were a Gentile. And if you have circumcision, you were a Jew, or so it would go. And so in that sense, he calls Gentiles in this church, Gentiles in the flesh. What he means is they are Gentiles from a Jewish perspective by virtue of the lack of having the mark of Jewishness on their body that they could be seen as Gentile. He's using these terms very carefully because he's not endorsing them. 
He's not echoing them. He's simply acknowledging this view exists. A Jew, the circumcised, he calls it, would refer to Gentiles as the uncircumcised. It was an insult. It was an insult. Can you imagine in our church today, and granted this is not our way of thinking because we don't have this background, but what if we had it, let's say, and there were Jews amongst us, believing Jews? What if in casual conversation I refer to somebody in here as the uncircumcised? Here's John, the uncircumcised. I mean, it seems a bit crude to us because of what it refers to, but for them it was just shorthand. But it begs the question, why are you making that distinction? What's behind it? What's the purpose in it? It's a zero-sum game. Because by calling somebody the uncircumcised, I'm referring to myself indirectly as the circumcised, as someone who has something they don't have. Ironically, it's the other way around, right? But the point is, I have a status they don't have. It's too much information for some of us right now. And Paul wants to emphasize that this is a human distinction, not one that God honors, not in the body of Christ. He calls this the mark that comes through human hands. And of course, he's referring to the way circumcision is performed. But what he means is, no one enters the family of God, spiritually speaking, through a human work. Right? We just covered that at the beginning of this chapter, right? So, if circumcision is a mark of the flesh made by human hands, well then we know definitively, it cannot be a means of salvation for anyone, whether Jew or Gentile. It serves a purpose. It served the purpose of uniting the people of Israel as one nation under a covenant, but it's not a substitute for faith. It had nothing to do with bringing those people into heaven. It was there for other reasons. And one of the reasons it existed in the way God gave it to Israel was it created a separation. In verse 12, Paul reminds the Gentile readers what they were separated from because they lacked the mark of Jewishness. He says they were first separated from the promises of the Messiah. Gentiles had no knowledge, for the most part, of a coming Messiah. More importantly, they had no interest. They had no reason to care. And I want you to consider the magnitude of what Paul's saying here in verse 12, this first point in verse 12. As we studied Genesis years and years ago, I remember the old joke here when people would say, when did you join the church? Oh, Genesis 6. When did you join the church? Genesis 10. So in that two and a half years when we studied Genesis, you may remember that in the centuries after the fall of Adam, God was at work revealing himself through only a certain line of humanity. We call it the seed promise line. That particular line of humanity received the revelation of God. No one else did. And then, beginning with Abraham and then Isaac and Jacob, the Lord began to reveal himself not to a single line, now to a family of people, and from that family to a nation of people. But apart from those God was intending to work with, the rest of humanity did not know the Lord, for he did not reveal himself to them, for the most part, for the vast majority of them. So I want you to consider what we're saying, what the Bible is saying. Millions of people have lived and died without ever knowing the Creator, except at a distance, in the way that Romans 1 reminds us, of of the fact that there is a God, but of no particular insight as to who he is or what he wanted. They were separated, Paul says. From the Messiah. They were separate because of humanity's sin. God didn't separate them. They came into life that way. But nonetheless, God did not reveal himself to them. So Paul is reminding Gentile believers, which of course this morning is virtually everyone I would assume in here, just understand how special it is that you and I have been granted an opportunity to know of Christ. Don't ever fall for the more modern view that says God owes the world some opportunity, that he owes the world some knowledge of himself. That's not in the Bible, friends. He doesn't owe us anything. 
unless you want to include hell. That, yes, he owes us hell if he was to be perfectly just in responding to who we are at birth. But because of his grace, he doesn't do that to everyone. Paul says, we started the world without a knowledge of him. He had to walk into our life and offer something to us. And he did it out of his love for us. We covered that earlier. Paul says, but don't forget where you started. And certainly don't forget the past of what God has been doing, just so that you understand how how special it is that God has opened the door for us. And he adds after that, that Gentiles were separated from the commonwealth of Israel. Commonwealth, the word just refers to the civic or the religious or commercial life of a people. In this case, of the people of God of Israel, the commonwealth of Israel. Friends, Jews had a commonwealth, a lifestyle that God instituted for them and administered for them. And Gentiles had no place in Jewish life, for the most part. And therefore, Gentiles did not benefit from the supernatural success that God visited upon his people because of his promises. Over the history of Israel, and you can do a study on this without much effort and see it for yourself, that even though they've been a very persecuted people because of their spiritual importance to God, nonetheless, there has never been a group of people more blessed throughout the course of humanity than Jewish people. Social studies have confirmed that Jews are overrepresented, hugely overrepresented, amongst the world's greatest scientists, musicians, artists, businessmen, politicians. Jews only make up 0.2% of the world's population. And yet, they have a far greater percentage in each of these areas of achievement. And the accumulated contributions of Jewish people to the benefit of humanity are truly astounding. Truly astounding. I remember somebody recently in the news was saying that as the Arab nations want to boycott everything that Israel is about, they ought to be boycotting all of the consequential outcomes of Jewish people throughout history. And of course, if they do that, the list just goes on and on and on because of how many Jews have contributed to what we take for granted today. The science that drives the technology of our life has come principally from Jewish scientists, Jewish engineers, men like Einstein, Freud, Carl Sagan, Oppenheimer, Edward Teller, Jonas Salk, Niels Bohr, Max Born, Steve Ballmer, Mark Zuckerberg. Jewish writers would include Asimov, J.D. Salinger, Karl Marx, Anne Rand, Norman Mailer, and artists and actors. And if you go down the list for artists and actors, we could be here all day. Harrison Ford, Woody Allen, Daniel Radcliffe, if you like the Harry Potter stuff. Gwyneth Paltrow, Dustin Hoffman, Billy Crystal, Oliver Stone, Leonard Nimoy, and William Shatner. James Kahn, George Gershwin, the prophet Joel, Billy Joel, Bob Dylan, Lauren Bacall, the list just goes on and on. And you have Jews to thank for almost everything that you touch in life. Do you wear Levi jeans? Hello, Levi. You have a Jew to thank. Do you use a Dell computer? Michael Dell is Jewish. Do you like the movie E.T. or Jaws? Steven Spielberg is a Jew. Do you like Hershey's chocolate? Hershey is a Jew. Was a Jew. What explains this? What explains the higher rates of Jewish success? Now, the unbelieving world would label Jewish success as a conspiracy, and they would use it as an excuse to persecute God's people, and many have done that over history. Paul says, no, 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 that's just the commonwealth of Israel brought to them by God. God promised to bless the Jewish people disproportionately in his covenant 
that he gave to Abraham. And it's not to say Gentiles are without any blessing from God. He brings the rain on both the righteous and the unrighteous. We're not saying it's an all or nothing. What we're saying, though, is that God has set Israel up by his promises to have this disproportionate blessing above all other nations, even in the midst of their persecution. And Paul says we as Gentiles lack these things because we were strangers to the covenants that God used to bring them to Israel. It's an important insight for Bible students to understand that God accomplishes everything that happens through His Word, which He gives to us in the form of covenants or promises. Nothing happens that is not part of a covenant that God has made with the world through His Word. He makes promises, He gives assurances, and then by His Word, He fulfills these things in His own power. So if you're to receive the promises of God concerning something, you must first be party to a covenant in which He has issued that promise to us. The Lord gave his promises specifically of a Messiah and of the commonwealth that Israel enjoys. He gave those promises to Abraham and to his descendants. They're alluded to in earlier things, but they're most clearly evident when God spoke to Abraham. He said Abraham and his descendants would enjoy these things. And friends, Gentiles are not the natural descendants of Abraham. And therefore, we are not members of these covenants, not by birth. And so God, in the covenants He gave to Abraham and later other covenants He gave to Israel, He set them up for what they will receive. But we, as Paul says, we were strangers to all of that. And so as a result, Paul concludes, we had no hope and we were without God in the world. Now obviously he doesn't mean Gentiles have no hope as in we were hopeless in all aspects of life. That's not what he's getting to. In a general sense, hope is a common human experience. We know that. Kids hope for nice gifts. Women hope for faithful husbands. Men hope for good harvests. I mean, we all have that side of life. But Paul isn't talking about that. Paul is talking of an eternal hope. He's talking about a sure and certain knowledge that our death is not the end of us. That hope. He's describing that unique hope that is made possible by a true knowledge of the living God. It's a hope that the Creator will let us live again and that He will not hold our sins against us. That is a hope, Paul says, that Gentiles did not have. Whatever other hopes they entertained, they didn't have that one. And that's why he says they are without God. And that hope, that promise, comes through a covenant. The Greek word behind without God, it's a very unique word in the New Testament. It means godless, but not in the pejorative sense. You know, if I call someone godless today, it's an insult, right? It's like saying you're an ungodly, unholy person. He means it more in the technical sense. They literally did not have God. They just didn't have Him. Whatever they were, whether they were a decent person or whether they were a complete loser, they just didn't have God. He was out of their reach. Now the question is, is this what God wanted? Well, the answer is obviously yes. God intended this separation to exist between Jew and Gentile. In fact, the Lord made Israel to be a peculiar people, a strange people from our point of view, expressly so that the Jews would remain separate, so that people would look down on them. Not that they deserved it, but that God then would ensure a separation. That uniqueness causes them to separate from us and us to separate from them. I'm speaking now, of course, prior to Christ. I'm speaking to the days of when they were created under the Old Covenant. And it was always in God's intention that that distinction would remain true over millennia. It brings Israel to a place where through them God can be seen to work in bringing the Word of God, the promises of God, the Messiah. And it continues even to today. If you meet a Jew today who is not 
as we might say, completed or messianic. They don't know the Lord. They don't know Jesus. They're just Jewish by their traditions, by their family. You're looking at an unbeliever. And if they are operating as they should be under the old covenant, at least to the extent they can, they're going to retain that distinction. They're going to continue to eat foods in certain ways and not eat foods in certain ways. They're going to continue to honor a day of the week as a Sabbath. They're going to continue to do things that make the rest of us think they're a little odd. And in that way, they'll remain separate. It was in the midst of this culture, of this way in which Jews set up their lives in these Gentile cities of the diaspora and stayed distinct and retained all of that uniqueness. It was into that culture that Christ came to inaugurate a new covenant. The chance for Gentile sin of the Lord appeared. Paul says in verse 13, But now, in Christ Jesus, you, who formerly were far off, have been brought near. By the blood of Christ. So Paul says in verse 13 that Jesus opened the door for Gentiles to receive the promises that were given to Israel. A new covenant was inaugurated, Paul says. A new covenant in Christ's blood. He's describing the new covenant here. He didn't say it, but he's describing it. He says that by Christ, through his blood, Gentiles were brought near. Now think about that word for a minute. Doesn't that word stand in stark contrast to what we've just been talking about? In the moment earlier, we're talking about being separated, outside, apart, without. And now we're near. We're near in the sense that we know of God, we know who He is, where before we didn't. We're near in the sense that we're reconciled to God by our faith in Christ, where before we had enmity with God. That divide was healed by Christ's suffering and death, and now by faith we're brought near. What Paul's doing right now is something, again, a technical term. He's revealing a mystery. A mystery. In fact, he's going to refer back to this mystery at several points later in the letter. And ironically, mysteries in the Bible are not mysterious. It's kind of a misnomer in a way. The word mystery in the New Testament describes a hidden truth of God that he has now revealed. That is now knowable. Ironically, you only know of a mystery in the Bible after it's been revealed. And Paul, in his ministry, was privileged to reveal eight mysteries throughout his letters. And one of the most important mysteries that he reveals is the one we're studying here in this letter. And the name of this mystery is the church. The church is itself a mystery in that before it was revealed in the New Testament, no one saw it coming. Even though you can see evidence of it in the Old Testament, even though there are allusions to it in Old Testament prophecy, nonetheless, no one fully had the picture and put it all together until it came to be in the New Testament. And this is what I mean by the church. That God intended to form a community of Gentile believers who would follow the Jewish Messiah that had been sent for Israel. No one saw that coming. That God would bring Gentiles near to Him through Christ. No one saw that coming. In fact, think about the book of Acts. Peter has to be convinced by God through a dream to even preach to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles finally do start to believe, the apostles have to get together and and talk about it. They have to say, I guess they're coming to repentance. I guess this is what God wants. I guess we have to let them in. What else are we going to (laughs) do? Now we don't know what to do with them. They're not circumcised. Should they get circumcised? I don't know. Can they eat things strangled? No, I don't want them to do that. That makes me very uncomfortable. Right? They had to start figuring out, how do we bring these people that we have long since thought were outside the reach of God and they're dogs and now God's bringing them together with us? They're part of this? That was a mystery. And like any mystery, someone has to explain it. 
And Paul was the apostle that God permitted to reveal this mystery to us. Now, at this point in history, 2,000 years or so after all of this, we take this for granted, don't we? We take for granted that the church has Gentiles. And I think that means we probably overlook just how amazing it is that God has included us in the promises of Israel. As I said, no one saw this coming. Not even the apostles saw this coming until it was revealed. Yet here we are. And more than that, we are receiving... What Israel was promised even before Israel itself is receiving it. Think about that for a moment. The covenant that has brought us near to Christ, the new covenant, is just like all the other covenants God has made. They are covenants between God and Israel. There's no covenant between God and the Gentiles. But we're grafted into the one God made Israel. And this is where we read about the new covenant. Jeremiah 31 is where we read about the new covenant. That's where it's named most clearly. And Jeremiah 31, 31 says this. Behold, days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant, now notice, a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Jacob. Not like the covenant which I made with their fathers in the day I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant which they broke, although I was a husband to them, declares the Lord. But this is the covenant which I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and on their heart I will write it. And I will be their God, and they shall be my people, and they will not teach again each man his neighbor and each man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they will all know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord. For I will forgive their iniquity and their sin I will remember no more. So several points to make on Jeremiah 31. First, he gave his new covenant to Israel. He says the the new covenant will be to that group of people like the ones he's made before. And he says, secondly, that the covenant involves giving his people a new heart that can cause them to live according to his commandments. Friends, this is a covenant with the power to compel righteousness. It's a promise, really, of glorification. Thirdly, Jeremiah says that when this covenant comes to Israel, and notice this, there will be none among Israel who need to be taught of the Lord, or we might say it today, there'll be no unbelievers. There'll be no one you have to go evangelize. Everyone in Israel will know the Lord truly. It's a covenant that promises to make Israel a nation of faithful, glorified followers of Christ. Now, obviously, given what it's promising, we know that Israel is still awaiting this fulfillment because you look at Israel today, clearly they're not reached this point. So this happens later, and if you want to know when, it happens at the end of this age, according to Zechariah 12. And Paul also echoes that in Romans 11. But meanwhile, meanwhile, look at yourselves. You and I have received it, at least a degree of it. That is to say, we have the law written on our heart. We've been born again by the faith that we've been given in Christ. We're still awaiting the glorification when we will walk purely in what we have had written on our heart. That's still a a day yet to come. But we're on the path. We've already started it. We've received it. As we look at Israel as a whole, they have not. The church precedes Israel in receiving what Israel was promised. God has done this to fulfill his promise to Abraham in which he said he would bless all nations through the Messiah, through the seed. So friends, we are a step ahead of where God said he was going to take the nation of Israel and yet he never said much, not specifically, that he was going to do this with us. He alludes to it. He mentions that he would make them jealous through a people who are not my people. He makes it clear in hindsight, but coming in, no one knew this. Now in the meantime... As the Lord is bringing this covenant to Gentiles in the church, as we're being reconciled to God and having the law written on our heart and having a life of service to this covenant, we are not the only ones 
While most of Israel is still awaiting this, there are some within the nation of Israel who are coming to faith in Jesus Christ. Sometimes, as I mentioned earlier, we call them completed Jews or Messianic Jews. I actually think those terms are a bit pejorative. I don't think it's a very fair thing to be a completed Jew suggests that somehow they were incomplete. Well, that's all humanity, really. You shall call ourselves completed Gentiles, if that's what we want to say. They're just believers. They are, the Bible would call, the remnant of Israel. The word remnant in the Bible always refers to the believing element within the larger group of Israel. There's always been a believing element. There'll always be a remnant by the promises of God. There'll never be a day when belief in Israel dies out. But for now, God is moving principally among the Gentiles, while for the most part, Jewish people are not receiving the gospel. One day that will change. God has moved to bring Gentiles into his family, and even then, there will be Jewish believers. But in the time of Paul, it was actually more the opposite, particularly in some of these cities of the diaspora. Where did Paul go first, for example, when he would travel into a new city with the gospel? He would go to the synagogue, for he knew that God's intent was that the word of God would go to the Jew first, and then to the Gentile. Even though he also knew that the response of the Gentiles was going to be far greater than the response of Jews. But he started in the synagogues. And in many cases, in these diaspora cities, it was in that synagogue, in the Jewish community, that faith took hold first. And as a result, in the early stages of the church, quite often churches were predominantly Jewish, or at least there was a healthy representation of Jews in the church. Over time, that changed. But initially, they had that mix. And now you have thousands of years of separation that had been previously defined by God through the covenants, a relationship that defined what Jew and Gentile meant to one another, now you had that history working against the unity of the church. Because people brought all that prejudice in with them, didn't they? Many Jewish believers were slow to abandon their practices under the Old Testament law, practices that were initially intended to foster separation, like the dietary laws and so on. And certainly, you can imagine the Gentile believers were not particularly interested in adopting all of those Old Testament practices as a consequence of their faith. Well, that just ensured that continuing separation. You had the Jewish believers, the Gentile believers. You know, we follow divisions on other lines, but we still see it. Was it Martin Luther King that said the most segregated day in America is Sunday morning? Paul was frequently forced as a result of this to defend the rights of Gentiles in the church and to rebuke Judaizers who were running around inside the church trying to convert Gentiles into Judaism as a prerequisite to becoming faithful followers of Jesus Christ. What would you think if someone said, believe in Jesus and be saved, but if be circumcised? What was that last part? I have to be circumcised before I can be... You know, I'm not so interested now. You think it's hard to evangelize before that? Try adding that criteria to the process. This is the battle he's fighting here in Ephesus. We see this reflected here. Let me take you very briefly to a letter Paul wrote to this city, but not this letter. A letter he wrote to the young pastor who was living there, a man named Timothy. And in 1 Timothy chapter 1, this is the opening of his letter, listen to what he starts saying to Timothy right off the bat, a man who had to minister in this city, and see if you don't see some of the seeds of this same conflict showing up in his letter to Timothy. He says in 1 Timothy 1.1, Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, according to the commandment of God our Savior and of Jesus Christ, who is our hope, to Timothy, my true child in the faith, grace, mercy, and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. As I urged you upon my departure for Macedonia... Remain on at Ephesus so that you may instruct certain men not to teach strange doctrines, nor to pay attention to myths and endless genealogies, 
which give rise to mere speculation rather than nurturing the administration of God, which is by faith. But the goal of our instruction is love from a pure heart and a good conscience and a sincere faith. For some men, straying from these things, have turned aside to fruitless discussion, wanting to be teachers of the law, even though they do not understand either what they are saying or matters about which they make confident assertions. Now you notice Paul's interest here, right? He's telling Timothy, you need to instruct certain troublemakers in the church who seem to be absorbed in Jewish distractions. And I say Jewish because you can see by what he says here that the false teaching that was being spread around in Ephesus revolved around men teaching endless genealogies and wanting to be instructors of the law. Well, both of those things are uniquely Jewish concerns. Your genealogy was all important to the Jew. It set up your place in the Jewish culture. And the law, well, the law was the binding element of Jewish life. It was like their constitution. The only reason you would want to promote those things in the context of teaching a church is because you want to bring Jewishness to the Gentiles in that church. But Paul makes clear to Timothy, this false teaching has no place in the church. He calls it strange speculation and fruitless myth. It's unhelpful. Why is it unhelpful? Well, beyond the fact that it's simply not biblical, it perpetuates separation. Do you see that? It continues the idea that there are the haves and the have-nots. As Paul explains, and this is our last piece today, Ephesians 2.14, Paul says, For he himself is our peace, who made both groups into one, and broke down the barrier of the dividing wall by abolishing in his flesh the enmity, which is the law of commandments contained in ordinances, so that in himself he might make the two into one new man, thus establishing peace, and might reconcile them both in one body to God through the cross by it having put to death the enmity. We're going to cover this passage in far more detail next week, but for today I want to cover just one point out of it to finish what we started today. Paul says Christ brings peace for Jew and Gentile. Now, obviously, he brings us peace primarily with the Father. We heard last week a well-taught passage out of Second Corinthians showing that we're reconciled to the Father. The Father's wrath been poured out on Christ in place of us receiving it. Right? He brought us peace with the Father. But now Paul adds here that we also find peace being established between Jew and Gentile. Now, obviously, God never expected Jew and Gentile to war with each other, but neither did he call upon them to unite either. They were supposed to be separate. And God instituted that separation through covenants that He gave to Israel that forced that separation. Nothing symbolized that separation better than the wall that was set around the temple of Jerusalem. There were a series of barriers. The most obvious one, the one that was most prominent around the temple compound, was the wall that God required be built originally around the tabernacle to separate the Jew from the Gentile. Any Jew could enter that compound, but no Gentile could legally enter that compound. And even a Gentile convert to Judaism, proselyte as we would call them, even that Gentile was barred from entry. You could not convert sufficient to let yourself get through that door. If you weren't born a Jew, you weren't a Jew. Gentiles who had converted would still stand on the outside of that wall looking for an opportunity to worship the Lord that they followed, that they knew. If a God-fearing Gentile could not approach God in the temple service, then that raises the question, how did such a person find fellowship with God? Well, the message was clear. The fact that the wall stood there by God's law said only Jews were being offered fellowship with God under the Old Covenant. That's the only audience for that covenant. 
We don't usually see Jewish believers today divided against Gentile believers, though it does happen, as I mentioned. When it happens in some places, it happens for exactly the same reasons that it was happening in the first century. That is, teachers run around in those places, wherever they go, and they demand that the Gentiles start to return to Jewish practices under the law, and they make that practice a requirement as if God is somehow unhappy with them without that expectation put upon them. What they do when they say that is they erect a new dividing wall between members of the body. Because they know, as well as we do, that no matter how hard you try to work the law as a Gentile, you never become a Jew. The very fact that that teaching continues is only for one purpose at the end of the day. It's to remind everyone who the Jews are in the room. These Messianic congregations, they call themselves, which are there really just to prop up Judaism within the church as opposed to getting us any closer to being one with Christ. Now, as I said, our experiences in division run differently. But let's at least acknowledge the kinds of things we divide over in our experience as Gentiles. We divide over the color of the carpet in our sanctuary. Or the style of music. This is the kind of stuff we think is important enough to divide over. And I'm not being entirely facetious. I assure you, there have been churches that have divided over what kind of carpet goes inside the sanctuary or what kind of music they play. But it doesn't matter what we divide over. Any time we focus on earthly differences of that sort, rather than on the eternal union we have in Christ, we are at risk of erecting new dividing walls of our own design. It happens anytime you forget the place you have in the body of Christ, the place God has given you. When your individual desires or your individual concerns become more important than the needs of the body as a whole, than the unity of the body, well, right there, division just began, even if it's only in your own mind. When preserving your past identity becomes more important then living in the new identity you have in Christ, well, then you're dividing at that point. When you're asking, what do I get out of this body, rather than asking, what can I invest in this body, you're starting to divide. We've only just begun to study this, as I mentioned. But you can already understand, I think, that Christ expects unity, that the principle is a high value for the church, that we've been called to serve Christ by our works within the context of a body. Don't forget that even though your individual works are individual in the sense of how you accomplish them, you have to go about it doing it yourself, certainly. But that doesn't mean that they're done in isolation. Even then, our individual works are directed to the needs of others. If you're called to teach, you need an audience. If you're called to pray, you need someone who needs prayer. These things work like plugs and sockets. The whole idea is that they come together. But if you're divided... Well, then the very purpose for the group itself has gone away if there's no unity in the group. As I like to say, Christianity is a team sport. So let's not let our pride or our ego ever become the source of some new dividing wall that we erect. Because if we do that, whether we do it individually or as a group, if we all are doing it or if it's just a few of us, when you erect dividing walls in the church, you're only hurting yourself in the long run because you risk denying yourself the opportunity to serve others with your gift and you deny yourself the benefits of someone else's gift used for you. You've just set up some barrier to spiritual loss. So let's ask ourselves questions like this. Are we letting things like age or money or race or any other meaningless difference divide us from other Christians? And I'm thinking less about the ones you know inside the building, because typically that's not the worst problem. It's usually more one congregation versus another. Them and us. The body is much bigger than that. 
We don't want to divide easily over differences of opinion or meaningless things. We don't want to be quick to offend. We don't want to be slow to forgive. We want division to be the last thing that we would expect or consider. And yet, friends, it can happen faster than you would anticipate. Whenever it happens, it works against the benefits of why we come together. Let's consider those things in our week to come, and I'll pray with us to conclude. Heavenly Father, thank you, Father, that you have united us. Thank you, Father, that we can understand the benefits of it from your word. And forgive us, Father, when our own interests rise above those of the body, whenever that might happen in our lives. Help us forgive others who may do that to us. Help us understand, Father, that the whole purpose of this body is only met when it is united. And I thank you, Father, for the uniting we do have, that this church is a church of a family, that we love one another, we show it regularly, and we come together in unity to praise you every week. We don't ever want to lose that, Father. As we grow, as we seek new boundaries, you give us opportunities. Father, just help us stay as one in your, in your will and in the counsel of the Spirit so that we might serve you better. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.